This is episode 194 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, The Red Lotus and the Joy of Editing. This episode is part of our Sunday literary series during the pandemic. In fact, it's our 25th Literary Sunday episode. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we get to talk about another relatively new book. Uh, the book title is The Red Lotus, and it's written by Chris Bojalian and was published on March 17th of 2020, so quite recent, as I say. Let's start with what's really cool about this book. Uh, the cover is quite remarkable. It shows a dark-haired woman's head, of presumably attached to a body, floating in a pool along with lotus flowers, red lotus flowers around her. A very striking and interesting cover. It doesn't have a whole lot to do with the plot other than the title, but there are some scenes at the beginning that are around a pool, but the protagonist never actually gets into the pool, so it'd be hard to drown or float or whatever she's doing on the cover. It does look an awful lot like the promotional images for the new Amazon Prime TV series Absentia. So I'm guessing that there's something, you know, fashionable about this right now. It does bring up this quote that the author uses at the beginning of the book, there can be no lotus flower without the mud, which is a quote that I really love. A couple more comments about the beginning of the book. It does always kind of crack me up, the disclaimer that they often put at the beginning of works of fiction saying that any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, events or locales is entirely coincidental. This one struck me as funny because a lot of the book takes place in Vietnam. And so you just have to ask yourself, well, is it that a fictitious place or a product of the author's imagination? Anyway, the scope of the book is much narrower and so much less ambitious than End of October, the book that we reviewed last week, which I think helps it, actually. It takes place across 11 days, and the chapters are organized by day. So you can't really get those sections out of order. It, you know, So the book just holds together very well. It's a very clear structure, which I think is an improvement over the end of October. And here we get introduced to the main character, who's an ER doctor. And so she became a different person in the ER. She had, in fact, become a different person there. She was a tectonic recreation that was unrecognizable even to her own mother, an evolution wrought in months rather than millennia, 66 months if she was going to be precise, that had begun in her first rotation and culminated during her first July night as an attending physician. 
It was in the midst of the ER madness, the light and the sound, and there were just so many sounds, the human and the mechanical, the dying and the wounded, and the supportive and the scared, that she morphed into an adrenaline junkie. She was no longer a shy soul that balked at attention, a girl as wary of kindness as shelter cats with torn ears that even after adopted would shrink into the dark of the closet. She was something bigger, inexorable, and unyielding. Now, in the Amazon reviews, a lot of people don't like her as a character. This always strikes me as kind of a funny criticism, like, ah, you know, Scrooge, he was such an unpleasant character, or Holden Caulfield seemed so confused, or, oh, I just hated Voldemort, or reading Kafka, you know, I just don't like cockroaches. But, you know, there's no accounting for taste. I think she's perfectly fine as a protagonist. I might say that she seems a little bit uneven. She's sometimes kind of whiny when she's complaining about her boyfriend and then really sort of startlingly brave when she's inspecting a loved one's dead body. So maybe it's a little hard to picture her sometimes, but there's not a lot of description in the book. So that's probably the larger issue. More important to me, and you know me, is the quality of the writing, and there are some problems, just some distractions early on. It was a low-velocity wound and had chipped off a piece of the bone. The wound had chipped off a piece? There's a lack of antecedent, which is such a common problem as I'm looking at these books, and Chris Bojelian has some writing habits that really could be easily fixed. It's such a mystery when these things get through. One suggestion I would make to writers is go back over your manuscript and look at every use of there was and it was, it was when, it was where. Almost always you can rewrite those sentences and make your writing move a bit more, and that's a criticism that I would make here of The Red Lotus also. There's also a really great thing you can do now with word processors, and that is to look for words or phrases that you overuse or have used twice that would maybe stick out to people. Like there are two places in the book where he refers to impeccably lit bottles of alcohol in a bar. One time, fine, sounds great. The second time, I'm like, wait a minute. And this time they were actually only a few chapters apart. You know, something like that's going to stick in your reader's mind. So it's really great if you can get software to help you make those uh, corrections. It's just amazing how blind you can be to habits like that that you have for words that you use or overuse. But it's not lost on the reader, especially if it's a construction like that that you don't hear very often. I know in the last book I edited... The writer and I just finally got to laughing about the number of times the word great had been used. It was a self-help book, and we just had to struggle to find so many different ways to say great because everything and everybody was just great. Some things kind of jump out at you right off. So there was a line in there. She attended to other patients as they waited for the police, pulling on and off the latex gloves, including a little boy with a fever whose mother was terrified, needlessly it would turn out, when they looked at the blood work, and a deli man who'd snipped off a sizable chunk of his finger with this meat slicer. 
he was turning tongue into cold cuts, but hadn't nicked bone and needed only stitches and antibiotics. So my first questions are medical ones. The boy has a fever, but the author claims that worry is needless because of blood work. That It just doesn't make any sense. A fever can be dangerous regardless of the blood work. And then the deli man, it says he had snipped off a sizable chunk So I start thinking, well, did the chunk come in with him? Like, did they bring in the end of his finger and did it get reattached? It just doesn't feel as precise as it could be. And then on top of that, there's this weird construction. Well, that makes it sound like the boy is a latex glove pulling on and off the latex gloves, including a little boy. It's just confusing. And then also strange... Although, I'll grant you, I'm getting pretty fussy here, is this idea of turning tongue into cold cuts? Because I would have thought that cold cuts would require a bunch of different meats, that you can't just make cold cuts out of tongue by itself. You know what I mean? But I have this theory that this might have been the first medical thriller that Bajelian wrote. And so maybe he has this idea that he needs to be really specific with wounds and blood, And so he wanted for sure to bring up tongue. Now, how much does this matter? And really, that's a question for you. If you read over this sentence and it doesn't slow you down, doesn't make you reread it, no harm, no foul. For me, you know, I tend to have to reread a sentence like that. And so then I'm like, why is this screwed up? And then I'm mad because all these things are so fixable, right? Like missing and confusing antecedents. And there are just so many of those in this book. A line, my dad passed away four years ago, and I've only seen him once since the funeral. Am I the only one who would be startled by a sentence like that? A few other things. Describing a crowd as not the sort of crowd in which winter flu spreads like spilled gasoline. I mean, that doesn't seem like the right metaphor for how flu spreads. But again, I can be pretty picky. Here was another one. She stared at the shot of the two of them resting on their bikes, one leg on the ground. <laughs> to me, this just raises such a strange image. But, you know, maybe I just read too much, right? Chapter one opens with a line, the swallows skipped like flat stones across the surface of the infinity pool. Here's a look at the present moment. Our heroine is sitting outside at the pool, and she's getting worried about something. We don't know what yet, but it says she was beginning to resent their happiness. She's talking about the birds. Because her disquiet was morphing moment by moment into dread. She lowers her sunglasses to look down the driveway, which is lined by trees, and then he writes, They'd been planted by some French overlord, and they'd survived the wars. She was hoping to see him on his bike hurtling through the open wrought iron gates. At this point, I, I thought she really was waiting to see the French overlord. But of course, you're smarter than I am. And it turns out she was waiting for her boyfriend. So thanks, Mr. Majalian, for making me read that paragraph twice for understanding what I had gotten confused. Maybe it's just me. Anyway, so multiple pages of her worrying follow, including, oh yeah, this terrible sentence. If he were lost, he would have sent her what she imagined would have been a comical May Day. There actually were a number of places in this book with weird verb tenses. And since I teach English as a second language, I explain to my English learner clients 
that the second form of the conditional is if plus the past tense plus would plus the verb. In other words, if he were lost, he would send her a comical mayday. The way this sentence is written implies that he would have sent the message before he got lost. If he were lost, he would have sent her what she imagined, blah, blah, blah leaving out the she imagined part for a second. So we can definitely simplify not just the sentence, but the meaning. He would send her a comical mayday. If he were lost, he would send her a comical mayday. I don't think we need this she imagined part, maybe, because we're already inside her head, right? She's already imagining all of this, and we've just saved seven words, which is another thing. The book is 400 pages long. Which, considering, you know, kind of the low grade reading level of the book and the lack of description and that it's nearly all either action or worrying, it really should be shorter. I have one more longer example where we can work through a set of sentences to tighten things up and make it clearer and more interesting. But I'll put that at the end for those of you who are interested in editing and writing. So all this to say, we're not in the hands of a master writer, in my opinion. But Sarah Leal wrote for the New York Times Book Review, Bajalian is a pleasure to read. He writes muscular, clear, propulsive sentences. So, shows how much I know. Anyway, so back to our story. The boyfriend is out on a bike ride in Vietnam to visit some places that were important to his family history, and she ends up going out to look for him. This is my favorite part of the book, the discussion of the bike tour that they're on, long-distance biking, information about tourism in Vietnam. It's all really interesting and cool. I would have loved more description of the countryside and the little towns, but, you know, it's cool. It's different. It gives you an Uh, window into a really different place. There's quite a bit about the Vietnam War, uh, which he tells us the Vietnamese call the American War. Isn't, Isn't that interesting? It really makes you think. I personally think he could have gone a tiny bit further, not as far as Wright did in the end of October, but to really teach us something. But at least he went to some effort, you know, to talk about napalm, Agent Orange, birth defects in Vietnam, and I think his sympathy for the people really comes through. One quibble with the quote-unquote factual information in the book, despite the disclaimer at the beginning, uh, he reports that a British general named Jeffrey Amherst used smallpox-infected blankets to kill Indians. There's very little evidence that that really happened and at least not by Amherst, and there's no evidence that it worked. Remember, we learned that back in that episode that I did way back on April 17th about the history of pandemics and epidemics. It seems like so long ago. I'd say that worrying about somebody who's missing has kind of been used a lot in fiction, but I think it still really works here. So we get to learn the backstory of this couple as she's turning over all these possibilities in her mind. You know, and we've all been there. I just think it makes her really relatable, and and I really enjoy that beginning part of the book. I won't tell you much more about the plot because the book is an easy read. I don't want to spoil it for you if you're interested in it. 
you know, it's not great literature, so I'm not going to say that you're you're really missing out if you don't read it. Uh, but maybe you'd like to read it since it's fairly new. I think uh, this is a fine description. This is what they used from the publisher. The first time Alexis saw Austin, it was a Saturday night, not in a bar, but in an emergency room where Alexis sutured a bullet wound in Austin's arm. Six months later, on the brink of falling in love, they travel to Vietnam on a bike tour so that Austin can show her his passion for cycling and he can pay his respects to the place where his father and uncle fought in the war. But as Alexis sips white wine and waits at the hotel for him to return from his solo ride, two men emerge from the tall grass and Austin vanishes into thin air. The only clue he leaves behind is a bright yellow energy gel dropped on the road. As Alexis grapples with this bewildering loss and deals with the FBI, Austin's prickly family and her colleagues at the hospital, Alexis uncovers a series of strange lies that force her to wonder, where did Austin go? Why did he really bring her to Vietnam? And how much danger has he left her in? Set amidst the adrenaline-fueled world of the emergency room, The Red Lotus is a global thriller about those who dedicate their lives to saving people and those who peddle death to the highest bidder. It's pretty cool. Uh, the book was published, as I say, on March 17, 2020, and Bojalian wrote a post for the Washington Post in April commenting on the irony of publishing a book about a pandemic just when the shutdown was happening, which actually resulted in the cancellation of his book tour. He wrote, but the reality is that we are always living in history, and sometimes we forget that history is a river in which we are always waiting. He also writes, I think this is really a kind thing for him to say, we are all a little fragile right now. Someday we will look back on this time and know precisely where we were when we stopped shaking hands, we started standing further apart, we saw supermarket shelves bereft of toilet paper, we realized the bookstore had closed, we lost our jobs, we learned someone we knew was sick, we learned someone we knew had died. When this pandemic spring becomes the Renaissance summer, and yes, that is my hope, we will all be a little kinder with one another and a little more patient. I was on a runway in Denver awaiting takeoff at 7.59 when the first of the two World Trade Towers collapsed on 9-11. I was on the book tour for a novel that was going on sale that day. We never left the ground, and I would spend the next week in a hotel in Denver. And my principal memories are how hard my publisher worked to bring me home and how courteous and gentle all of us were who were stranded together in that hotel. It's really lovely and heartfelt, isn't it? It's possible that the Red Lotus also suffered from being rushed to print like the end of October, but I didn't see evidence of that. And I think the March date is really when it was supposed to come out. Bojalian mentions other books also published on Tuesdays, and that is because he has published a ton of other books. It's really amazing for me to discover writers I've never heard of who have written so many books. The Red Lotus, I think, is his 21st. He's a real live professional writer. He started publishing in 1988 once he quit his advertising job and moved to Vermont. He's best known for his fifth novel, which was called Midwives. Uh, it was published in 1997, became a New York Times bestseller, as have several of his other books. 
It was selected for Oprah's book club. It became a TV movie in 2001 starring Sissy Spacek. It's about a midwife who faces legal problems after one of her patients dies following an emergency C-section. He doesn't always write about medical issues. He's also written about homelessness, animal rights, ghosts, love, etc. Many of his stories take place in fictional Vermont towns, which is not the case for The Red Lotus. And he said it was in Vermont that he discovered issues and things that mattered to him. In terms of criticism from real critics, his work has been accused of being formulaic. And Megan Harlan of the Boston Phoenix said that he focused too much on creating a complex plot and not enough on complex characterizations. I guess I generally agree, although I do think the most interesting and appealing character in The Red Lotus is an Armenian P.I., and Bojalian is of Armenian descent, and his grandparents survived the Armenian genocide. His book, Sandcastle Girls, is about the genocide and about its denial by Turkey. So that could actually be a pretty interesting one to pick up by him. So I don't think that the Red Lotus was rushed. I do think Bojalian is a professional writer who was making a living by writing lots and lots of books. So you have to be aware of the price that you pay for doing that. His next book, for example, is out in April of 2021. And since 2007, he has essentially published one book every year. So you can't work too hard on every book if you're going to hit that timetable. And I think some of that fast writing, little editing shows up in The Red Lotus. There's also some criticism about the book being too much about rats. And there is quite a bit about rats, but it just kind of strikes me as a little bit funny. It's like complaining about unlikable characters. As Susan S. Reibman gave it a one out of five stars, called it a terrible book, She said, I hate this book so much about four-legged rats. The heroine goes about search in strange ways. I usually love this writer, not this time. M.M. gave it one out of five stars, says she has a weak stomach. I was in the middle of the book when I began to consider not finishing it. I found the characters uninteresting and the plot plodding. It took gratuitous descriptions of rat pustules and the horrific deaths of Vietnam civilians for me to turn it off. She was listening to the audible version permanently. Lynn had to quit reading too much information and vivid descriptions about rats. Now, Bajillian, actually, you might not be surprised about that. He actually has some pretty sympathetic information about rats and their colony behavior. He claims that rats will trade goodies to help uh, another rat. Uh, But he also describes the rat as the most effective delivery vehicle for mass death ever to exist on Earth. And there's also lots of information about how rats can become immune to viruses and how fast they reproduce. Uh, He says a rat's nest in the basement of your apartment building can quickly become a rat's nation. Oh, we work to poison them. Some people shoot them. We try and break their necks and backs in traps. But a rat isn't a mouse. A rat is a formidable enemy. 
A brown rat in a city stretches 16 inches from its tail, the twitching, whiskered tip of its nose. Now, coincidentally, I had noticed a rat run under our grill here on our deck in Southern California a few weeks ago, and we periodically do have rats in our neighborhood, although they are tiny compared to this 16-inch monster that he describes here. And we have several stories over the years about rats, like the one that I encountered in the laundry room who got so freaked out when it saw me that it raced away and then pancaked itself spread eagle on the filing cabinet like a cartoon character that flies through the window leaving a a silhouette of itself behind. It was very weird behavior. And then there was the rat's nest we discovered that was full of trinkets and oddities from our around our house like a little rat's Taj Mahal. That said, I don't like rats or I should say I don't like them around the house. So I ordered a big box of rat traps after I'd seen this rat on our deck. And I've used them before but I'd kind of forgotten how to set them. So the first night the rat ate all the peanut butter and didn't trigger the trap because I'd set it in such a way that you would have had to have been the jolly green giant to trigger that thing. Anyway, then I got on YouTube and set the thing correctly. Uh, The next night, the rat just ate all the peanut butter and again, didn't set it off. Mm -hmm. So at this point, I'm just training the rat to come to our deck to eat dinner. The next night, I did set it correctly, and this time when the rat triggered it, (laughs) I'd slipped it under the underside of the grill, and the bar, which was supposed to smash the rat, got stuck on the underside of the grill, so the rat was protected. At this point, I was beginning to wonder that maybe I wasn't good at this, and my son started calling me the queen of the rats. So I tried again. This time, I was had my headphones on, and my son walked into my office. I hadn't heard anything, and he said that the rat had tripped the trap and then had squealed. And he said, I don't need to be hearing that, and then he stomped off. But you know, the trap was uh, still empty, even though it had been triggered. And Bajillian has written, but that's the thing about rats. They evolve fast. They adapt. You don't exterminate them, not ever. You just control them as best you can. So that's where we stand as of this recording. And I'll keep trying to catch the rat. You can send thoughts and prayers to either me or the rat, depending on whose side you're on. Now, to deal with the thriller aspect of this novel, it's not really much of a thriller. Pretty much the most exciting moment is waiting for the elevator to come up during the climax. And it's filled, really, with lines about people calling each other and not getting an answer and leaving messages or missed calls or texts. It it almost gets to be kind of funny. There's so much of it in there. This is also another one of those books where the heroine gets to do something basically right in front of the bad guy that the bad guy conveniently doesn't notice. Anyway, books like that are always funny. And I would say the biggest criticisms from the Amazon gang is about the plot and the pacing. Uh, So Lawrence Meyer said, The New York Times, for some reason, gave this book a rave review 
And unfortunately, it doesn't live up to it. The plot plods along. Boy, everybody likes to say that. The revelations are telegraphed, so they're no surprise. The dialogue is often unnecessary and does nothing to move the story along. The action is almost non-existent until the end, and the heroine is a bit annoying. The story does, however, hold your attention in much the same way that a bowl of mashed potatoes fills your stomach but doesn't leave you relishing the meal. (laughs) Interesting. Carolyn Taylor said she'd always been a huge fan of Chris Bajalian. Uh, She admired his diligent research and his empathetic style, which I think that's a very significant description for him, and his ability to inform as well or entertain. The Red Lotus did not disappoint, but Jalian's characters in the timely story kept me turning pages well into the night. You will not be disappointed in the newest book by this talented author. So there's a nice review from Catherine Taylor. Uh, Critical review here from somebody unidentified. Oh, actually, this one was funny. She had nothing good to say about the book. She said, I cannot say one good thing about it. Total piece of crap. Waste of hard-earned money. Was looking forward to it, but nothing like I thought it was going to be. They say you cannot judge a book by the people who are paid to review it. Sad. This guy did such a great job in his other books, which I had not read, but this book sucked. Don't buy it. (laughs) It was a funny review. Uh, Then a Kindle customer said that she didn't finish it. Unbelievable plot and unlikable characters. A Crane said that he used to really be a big fan, but has seen something with Bojalian's style that he doesn't like. And that is, he says that he's turned a corner and decided that a really good writing device was to sprinkle his narrative with parenthetical comments and asides as if he'd forgotten to put them into the text or wished that he had. Or, you guess why, because I sure cannot. The Red Lotus is now one of several in which he's used this ploy, and I've put aside every single one of them because trying to read stories written this way is like driving on a road full of potholes that made me stop or swerve or otherwise leave the path I was on. Being constantly interrupted by wink, wink, nudge, nudge, or oops, I forgot to tell you this is annoying beyond belief. I will not be taken in again. Goodbye, Chris Bajalian. Remember my thing about Amity Gage saying when readers are woken from their sleep, uh, they're in a really bad mood. This one definitely made me think about that. Allie F. said that she didn't like this one. It was too simplistic and inane. She wished she'd skip this one. (laughs) Catherine in Florida said, if Michael Crichton's The Andromeda Strain and Robin Cook's Contagion had a baby with multiple medical health issues that later died as a result. (laughs) That's funny. It's interesting those we happen to have reviewed those books already in this podcast, too. She goes on, This was a thriller that wasn't. At least for me, it lacked intensity, even though there were intense moments. At the heart, it had flawed plot development. The setup for the plot just seemed quite implausible, and its progression lacked any sense of being authentic. Another problem was the flat and not particularly likable characters, especially of the key characters. Their interactions were very superficial, and the relationship was as well. We saw very little of their relationship, and they seemed so different that their, quote, romance didn't seem realistic. When something happens to one while on a trip in Vietnam, the medical doctor seemed so distraught, and other times extremely eager to discredit her lover, 
though she claims to be madly in love with him, it is as though a switch had been flipped on her attitude. I think that those are valid criticisms. Daniel Melnick uh, gave it one star. He said, there's a subgenre that should be called literary schlock, which provides an internal literary account of a menaced woman protagonist mixed with a creaky, tightening plot, horror elements, and two duplicitous characters. Throw in pandemic bioweapons, Vietnam now and during the war, and the gratuitous evocation of the 1915 Armenian genocide in the thoughts of a grizzled Armenian P.I., And then he says, the usual network of institutional reviewers gave this schlock high ratings. Daniela Ritchie said, quite possibly the most boring thriller I've ever read. And then one last Amazon review here before I uh, close out this section. Julie M. said, as I read this book, instead of engaging me, my enjoyment started going downhill. Then, when it began using virus and bacteria interchangeably and referencing treating either or both with antibiotics in relation to a plague, I lost all interest. Publisher again, where are the copy editors? To me, one of the biggest fails of contemporary fiction is a lack of copy editors and leaps in the narrative too wide to suspend disbelief. So here's me and Juliem, just wolves howling in the wilderness. So I'm going to close out the formal part of the Uh, review here. So, you know, it's a possibility for you to read that. It's not great writing, um, but it is quite recent, and it definitely has a beautiful cover. Okay, that's really the end of the podcast, but I did say that I would work through a series of sentences to show how we could rewrite them to make the story more suspenseful and pack more of a punch. And so here's an example And I'm going to go through this in a little bit of detail here, just so you get a sense of what I'm talking about when I talk about good writing as rewriting, and maybe not so much just copy editing, but editing. So here is the section that we're going to work on, and it's original. The night before they had left for Vietnam, a guy roughly Alan's age had been brought into the ER just after dinner with an intracerebral hemorrhage. He'd collapsed at the dining room table, spilling his wine and toppling a tower of polenta and basil and sliced tomatoes and was long unconscious by the time the EMTs arrived. She suspected instantly that's what it was and that the poor man's brain was quite literally drowning in blood. The CT scan confirmed it. It was clear that emergency surgery was necessary, and even if the fellow survived, he was likely going to be a vegetable when they were done. This is fun, actually. So I can imagine all your little brains out there as starting to scrutinize these sentences, and that's exactly what you would have to do. So you start off, and this is an example of another peculiar verb tense. I don't think they need to use the past perfect here, this had left, if we specify that it was the night before. So this sentence goes, the night before they had left for Vietnam. Why? I know we're trying to tell this story as though she's thinking back on this event, you know, while she's sitting around the pool, uh, worrying and waiting for him. But to me, I think it's okay to say the night before they left for Vietnam. 
If I'm wrong about the verb tense, you just let me know. It's only two words, however we decide to go. Okay, then it goes on. Guy was brought in just after dinner with an intracerebral hemorrhage. To me, it sounds like he was having dinner with the hemorrhage. Plus, it wasn't really after dinner, since the guy didn't really get to finish his meal, right? So unless Bajalian means after her dinner, but then why even bring that up? So I think you could have just written brought into the ER, period. And then go on, he'd collapsed at the dining room table, spilling his wine and toppling a tower of polenta and basil and sliced tomatoes, and was long unconscious by the time the EMTs arrived. You do really need the heed here because he had collapsed before he was brought in. So you do need the past perfect there. But it's interesting that here it's okay to say was, he was long unconscious. So that makes me think that indeed we didn't need the past perfect at the beginning of uh, the paragraph. I'm not sure that we need to say polenta and basil and sliced tomatoes in a sentence that already has two other ands for a grand total of four ands in one sentence. I like toppling the tower, by the way. I think that's a nice alliteration and a really cool visual. We could have had a tower of polenta and sliced tomatoes and maybe leave out the basil, since it doesn't really add that much to a tower unless you're really putting in a lot of basil. Anyway, then it goes on, she suspected instantly that's what it was. Now, first of all, the antecedent for she is way back in an earlier paragraph, so I think First, we can make it easier on the reader and say Alexis suspected instantly. And here, instead of saying that's what it was, what is it? The only antecedent there is the Tower of Polenta, but that's definitely not what the writer means. Now, we could put the intracerebral hemorrhage here. It makes it clearer, it saves some words, and it also inserts a tiny bit of suspense because we don't know then what's wrong with him until a sentence or two later. It just makes it more interesting. And then also he doesn't have to dine with a hemorrhage. So the author then goes on and that the poor man's brain was quite literally drowning in blood. So let's, let's fix that up. Brains don't really drown, nor do we need to ever really say quite literally. So we could probably fix it up with an active verb and not the present progressive, the was drowning. I think I'd also take out poor because poor man is a little bit confusing, like maybe the guy has no money. I mean, you could try poor victim or poor patient. I think right now, I think I'd just leave it out. So something like the man's brain was leaking blood or oozing blood, which sounds pretty scary to me, actually. Then that said, the next sentence is this flat, the CT scan confirmed it. So how about we make Alexis sound super smart and we say Alexis instantly suspected an intracerebral hemorrhage and the CT scan confirmed it, period. That sounds good to me. Then it goes on. This is so fun. It was clear that emergency surgery was necessary, and even if the fellow survived, he was likely going to be a vegetable when they were done. But just to note, there's only one comma after survived. There's not even one before the and, even though it's followed by a complete sentence. I get it. Commas can be a bit subjective, and there's no accounting for taste. 
more serious is that there's no indication about who they are when they were done. Let's not fuss. Let's just fix it. Uh, so it goes, it was clear that blah, blah, blah. And then this lifeless word necessary. What's a better word than necessary? Required? Mandatory? A matter of survival? Of life or death? So let's, uh, let's also lose that it was clear, which is boring, and clear to whom, right? And say emergency surgery was required. I mean, that's still the passive voice. So what if we make it about our patient? Since we care about him, and we already took away calling him poor, poor guy. So we could say something like he needed emergency surgery. I mean, it's okay. It just sounds kind of flat. What if you said something like, he needed surgery now? I like it. I mean, you can imagine hearing the doctor yell in your head, right? Get this man to surgery now. And then we have, even if the fellow survived, he was likely going to be a vegetable when they were done. Whew, that's long. Now we have our antecedent right here now, so we don't need to say the fellow. So we can take that out. So now about, even if he survived, he was likely going to be a vegetable when they were done. Now this even if is confusing. I think what the author really means is, if he even survived, then something else would happen, right? So what about was likely going to be a vegetable when they were done? I mean, talk about losing all your momentum. So let's zap when they were done. It's not clear if we need to explain that, but we'll see if we have to come back to that. We will. Now, can we think of something a bit shorter than was likely going to be a vegetable? I thought so. What about would likely be or would probably be? So he needed surgery now, and if he even survived, he'd likely be a vegetable, or he'd likely end up a vegetable. Or you could go one step further, maybe you're way ahead of me. If he even survived, it would likely be as a vegetable. That's not bad. I mean, I like that vegetable comes at the end, so it kind of has that impact, that punch at the end. It is pretty sad. I mean, it does sound kind of heartless. So maybe we could say it from his perspective. Like, if he even survived, he risked ending up as a vegetable. So we've gone from... The night before they had left for Vietnam, a guy roughly Alan's age had been brought into the ER just after dinner with an intracerebral hemorrhage. He'd collapsed at the dining room table, spilling his wine and toppling a tower of polenta and basil and sliced tomatoes, and was long unconscious by the time the EMTs arrived. She suspected instantly that's what it was, and that the poor man's brain was quite literally drowning in blood. The CT scan confirmed it. It was clear that emergency surgery was necessary, and even if the fellow survived, he was likely going to be a vegetable when they were done. And that's the original, where we are now. See if you think it's any better. The night before they left for Vietnam, a guy roughly Alan's age was brought into the ER. He'd collapsed at the dining room table, spilling his wine and toppling a tower of polenta and sliced tomatoes, and was long unconscious by the time the EMTs arrived. 
Alexis instantly suspected an intracerebral hemorrhage, and the CT scan confirmed that the man's brain was leaking blood. He needed surgery now, and if he even survived, he risked ending up a vegetable. I don't know. Do you think it's better? We have saved 29 words out of the original 108, which is pretty good for four sentences. Woo-hoo-hoo-hoo! Now, that's not to say that removing words is the goal, right? But we do want every word to be worthwhile. And there's more that you could probably do to these four sentences to make them even better. Like, if I were to go through this again, you know, I might use elderly gentleman instead of a guy roughly Alan's age. Alan was only introduced in the previous paragraph, and it was pretty easy to miss how old he was. So we just help the reader, you know, by clarifying that the point is that he's old. And I think you could probably do something more visual than his brain was leaking blood. But that pass can be for going from the second draft to the third, right? So what we've done here is take out the bad things that show up in a first draft. And so our book actually looks as though a careful and thoughtful editor looked at it for you. All right, thanks for participating in our editing on the fly. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.